Nightcaps of the Living Dead. Poltergeist Part 2. everybody. Thank you so much for returning to us to hear part two of Poltergeist. Because uh, we thought we would knock it out in the first episode, but we got things to say with our 2020 revisionist point of view. Um, Guillermo, are you drunk or are you okay? <laughs> I am on bottle number two. Okay. And it's called Thousand Lives. A thousand Lives. Argentina Merlot. Okay. It's that sounds delightful. Really good. I am on a hard kombucha still, hard kombucha. Um, I know that sounds hippie as all hell, but I put some tequila in it and it's feeling nice because it's a million degrees in my apartment and I can't go to my beloved Skyfall just yet. Um, anyways, wanting to be in a pool. <laughs> Let's go into those pool boys. Yes. I know they're not pool boys. They're the pool guys or whatever. <laughs> so the, the creepy oglers. <laughs> Let's talk about the pool guys of Poltergeist. <laughs> All right, let's talk up. about it. Are they the um, Poltergeists? The Poulter. <laughs> I know. The Poltergeist. This is what the tequila is doing to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I understand, listener, if you are just like going away right now, if you are just switching and finding Joe Rogan or something. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about them. Um, so these pool guys were interesting in this movie because before the I was anticipating this scene and for some reason and I've seen this movie a million times I was expecting the pool guys to be Mexican mm-hmm. which is very normal in North, in Southern California yeah um, and then I thought so I thought it was so strange that they were white yeah and they also had teamster t-shirts that I missed I, completely. That's that's nuts. And, and so I was like, okay, these these are white teamster pool guys. But then the, the the interesting part that I noticed on top of that, and this is of course a twenty twenty kind of relooking into it, is how comfortable um, the mom or jo- Diane Jobeth Williams was mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. them, kind of intruding into her kitchen. You know how they again. I have this theory that this movie is all about eating, so starving. <laughs> It's so true. I haven't thought about it that way. It's so true. I totally see what you're saying. There is so much eating disorder (laughs) stuff going on. Um, So they're starving and they need some food. And then she laughs at them. And then they like completely sexually harass her teenage daughter. Yeah. And the mom watches her daughter kind of flipping the bird at them and has this proud moment or whatever. But she never feels threatened by these guys mm-hmm. that are being extremely inappropriate not only in stealing her food mm-hmm. but in harassing the daughter or ogling the daughter yeah and i thought if these pool guys were mexican would this scene be the same i think that you are a hundred percent correct a hundred percent and i never thought about it that way i really mm-hmm. didn't um you saying this yeah it's like that um like the stuffy white woman clutching her her pearls or her bag closer to her when she sees a black man walking down the street. What that kind of idea in society was, and God forbid it's still happening today, but, you know, that old-fashioned racism. And I wonder if the casting of white men as opposed to minorities, where it is very common in Southern California, like you pointed out, I wonder if that was 
appointed casting. I wonder if they're like, oh, we want to just keep it safe and contained. It's going to be a funny scene, like stealing the food and ogling the girl. Or or if it was just racist-ass Hollywood being like, eh, we only see white actors. I, I really don't know for that. But And, and, and it's just strange. And then when, of course, we're going to get to when the African-American actor, the one who, the paranormal Well, guy you know who, who he up, is, right? The only minority in this entire uh-huh. white ass movie uh-huh. um again never noticed any of this only now thinking of do you know who the actor is because i no, have who's the actor? i Talk have notes the on this oh we'll get to probably. it so we'll get to it we'll, okay, we'll get to it, it. but he's richard lawson mm-hmm. beyonce's stepdaddy what yeah no <laughs> Yes. That is nuts. Right. But we'll oh get to that. Yeah, God. I just okay, wanted we'll to like drop that knowledge really quick. That's like mind-blowing already. Um, so th- this entire sequence, which plays in, in a kind of, it's the moment of comedy in the movie. Right. Wow, these guys mm-hmm. are being in it. Um, but I thought there was like a, there's a sexism going on in that mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. But then there's the, the fact that it's just so weird. I was like, this is weird. This would this scene would not be made this way today mm-hmm. if this movie was made today. It would be a very different scene. Right. Um, and I don't know if it's representative of things that we overlooked back then about sexism. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie has an underlying, and I will get to that in Act 2, about mm-hmm. gender issues. Mm-hmm. But... Here I thought in my mind because I'm Hispanic, mm-hmm. I, because I expected the, the pool guys to be Hispanic. I was shocked that they were white, and then the fact yeah. that they were not threatening when they were. Yeah, extremely I agree with you <laughs> completely. And seeing it from your perspective, and I, I'm coming to it just from a female perspective, of you know, it's it's very creepy, it's very icky. But as a young girl, you're used to this weird behavior, and and in certain neighborhoods or states, um, different, yeah, I, it's hard to explain, but it's just like, oh, somebody's being kind of like aggressive towards you or making sexually suggestive remarks and you laugh it off or you tease them or, you know, you do anything but show defiance. And this teenage daughter flips them the bird. She's like, don't fuck with me, like you're gross. And instead of us being threatened or offended, we're just like, oh, haha, funny scene, whatever. Funny and, scene, yeah. When I was like, no, she, Joba yeah. should be firing the, their asses. Yeah, and and <laughs> and I think to go back to <laughs> what you were saying about her being hippy dippy back in the day and kind of like slowly changing into this, you know, '80s Republican. She's still the heart of the movie, and you know, very liberal at heart. She's walking around the house in her little tiny shorts, and she looks hot as anything. She's gorgeous, great body, and I think that she's just kind of feeling her sexuality. And I think she's kind of like, oh, you know, kids will be kids, and I, you know, I, I think she has no thoughts towards sexual boundaries honestly she seems like a protective and loving mother but she also seems like somebody that would give her kids some space like a cool mom (laughs) you know oh that's interesting so she gives them a lot of it's true they she doesn't um what's the word she's not overprotective yeah she's not a helicopter parent which we have a lot of in this day and age of their precious little bubble children She's more like a 
She's a cool oh, that's mom. That's fascinating. That's she's a cool mom. <laughs> cool she's like, mom. okay, yeah, and in a way, doesn't seem that far apart from her daughter's own, from her daughter's age. Like mm-hmm. she can understand what it was. She's I don't know. I'm assuming she's in her thirties in this movie, right? Um, what else so, you got? So that's and I'm, and that segues into the next scene about which I already talked about in the previous episode about reach back into your past when we were to, to have an open mind. Yes. So this reflects her open mindedness. Mm, this scene, okay. So, um, then the next thing I noticed about after that was that, and this kind of related to this, which another. I mean, I was so obsessed with this whole food theme. But Caroline is starving in, in that. You know, remember how they, they discover the paranormal thing with the chairs and mm-hmm, then the mom becomes mm-hmm. obsessed with it. And then the dad comes and he's trying to bring in the trash. That's right, and, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that entire scene where the mom, where Joe Beth is trying to explain to Craig T, oh my God, look what's happening. It's nuts. There's this paranormal bullshit thing happening. Oh, have an open mind. The entire scene, Caroline is like, I'm hungry. When are we having dinner? Yeah. I'm, I want food. And she's like, this no, hunger do element this. is hilarious. Stop bothering You're so right. me. And I was like, she is the kid, the child is starving. Interesting. That's <laughs> just true. like the pool guys. And just like poor older sister um, Dana, who's mm-hmm. starving herself, yet eating the chips at night. Right. So what is going on with the food situation? In you know this what? House? I think that represents greed. I do. I think it just goes with the capitalist theme of like, we want more, more, more. When will it be good enough? We want more. I mean, it could, it could be, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they, they, and they, they have all these things, but they don't feed the chip. I don't know. It's just like, the hmm. girl's hungry. And then the <laughs> people were, I don't know. It's just, I was very in tuned with this theme of people being hungry and not feeding themselves or having issues with when to feed themselves. And it was, all throughout the movie. It was right. in the script. Well, let's so. let's get to the terror starting to happen. Are you ready to go there yet? With yes, the tree let's go. Let's and go. the clowns and all that. Oh, but before we move there, you tell I had me. one big point tell me. to say about this particular scene. Okay. Um, that when Correcti Nelson finally sees what's happening with the chair moving and then uh-huh. Caroline sliding through the floor, uh-huh. um, he says, he commands... Jobeth, I don't want anyone going into the kitchen till I know what's happening. And I thought and that brought me the wrong way. I know. I had a similar thing. That's why I'm just like, man, Craig T, you're such a dickhead in this. I didn't think that you He's, were, but now I am sensitive. And I'm like, don't tell me what, don't you mansplain to me. <laughs> he was, and I was like, it should be until we know what's yeah. happening. Not until I, I know what's I, happening. I, I, yeah. I got really annoyed at that line as well. But there's an irony to that because I found that in Act Two, which we'll get to in a second, mm-hmm. once shit starts going down, he becomes useless. Oh yeah, then it's, the it's Joe Beth's story. It, she's yeah. the heroine. She she goes so, in and she saves so Caroline. I yeah. know what's happening, and mm-hmm. then you know what's happening, and then you don't know what the fuck to do. You shut down. He was useless. The second right. half of the movie, right. he disappears into a non person. Mm-hmm. That doesn't know what to do and just looks morose the whole time. I know. He's just bumbling around. Are, yeah. Yeah. 
And I then the female that. characters are kind of taking care of business. Yeah. So in a way, this is a feminist movie. I agree. I absolutely agree. Which we'll get to. We'll yes. get to. But I, okay, well, let's, let's go to the going. horror. Let's go to some of the action that happens. So there are two scenes in particular that whenever you speak about Poltergeist to fans of the movie, they're like, okay, I was fucking afraid of clowns for the rest of my life because that little clown in the chair... And then also the tree. And I find it interesting to see what hit home for people. Like, why did this particular scene affect you more than the other? Because some people were terror, like terrified of the swimming pool scene, of the skeletons. I thought that was just kind of like a dumb cop-out, honestly. But the, the clown... They were real skeletons, by the way. Yes, they were, but you know what? Well, they, side they note, real skeletons. side note know. on that, that is not a huge deal back in the day. Because in the 50s, like um, House on Haunted Hill and I think Frankenstein, they used real skeletons because it's way easier to go into a biological lab and say, hey, let me mm-hmm. take one of these buddies than to get a molding of one. So it was cheap. Like, totally get it. It's a big budget thing, which goes to the, <laughs> to the meta the meta curse of the theme of the movie of it's all about clueless, greedy people just getting what they want and being punished for it and not getting it until after the fact, until it affects them directly. And I think mm-hmm. that was part of the movie making process as well. But um, the clown on the tree, want to talk about it? Yes. So one thing that I wanted to say about the tree from earlier, so when when Robbie climbs onto the tree the first time we are introduced to the tree, mm-hmm. um, I thought, oh, what an awesome thing to do! I should try that. <laughs> I want to climb into a tree. I thought it was like a since the movie is this is a COVID twenty twenty perspective. Remember, I would love to see you climb into a tree. You would be I don't hilarious. Know, I probably can't. But. No, because I could see I could see you being like, oh, look at this. Oh, the pers- it's so nice up here. Oh, okay, it's this nice breeze. I could just see you enjoying every step of the way, and then like having I mean, to have me hoist up with a rope, a little martini. Yes. Because <laughs> like, I'm not climbing that this, damn tree. I'm not doing that. This is the- <laughs> I was like, oh, wouldn't it be? And then the tree in the movie looks like sturdy. Like you can climb on it and sit on it and right. you have your spot. It looks right? like a solid welcoming tree, but that is not the case. But then the tree, your new perspective will eat you alive. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So the tree, again, there was that first tree mm-hmm. in the middle of the tree that we talked about in the mm-hmm. previous episode. Then... Robbie has his tree moment where he's like, the tree's cool. I can see shit. Mm -hmm. And then the tree comes through the window and eats him. So, again, this is an environmental story. Right. At least in this through line with the tree. I agree, 100%. And it made me think, too, I mean, of uh, how nature is having a moment now that we're not wreaking havoc on it so much. Like, COVID is horrible and we all want this to be over so so quickly we want this to be over six months ago but um it was amazing to see the dolphins swimming in venice for the first time in ever or i don't know centuries and um and la we had a day of no smog <laughs> the world was in hd it was beautiful it was the cleanest day the air had ever been um so the fact that nature can 
express itself. When it's not being suppressed. When it's not being, exactly, when it's not being murdered or suppressed right. by the people who are living on top of it. So I think, you know, then you mentioned the happening in the previous episode. Yes. <laughs> this is kind of like the happening. Oh, this I didn't even mean to do that. I didn't mean to mean. Yeah. I didn't mean to they bring Marky that- Mark into this. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> The storm that comes, the tornado that just hits the house right. specifically. There's all these like nature stuff that I never really kind of paid attention to. Right. The whole scene with the counting, the the, the distance between yes. the thunder oh, that's such and the a lightning. Classic scene. I love that scene. So mm-hmm. as the movie kind of progresses into its second act, mm-hmm. two things I noticed. One was that all of us we've seen this idyllic suburban setting. Mm-hmm. And then they start showing the house surrounded by fog. Um, and it kind of uh, becomes like almost, I think it's making a reference to the exorcist. So the house that was hmm. like this like normal sort of a house that looked like all the other ones, all of a sudden it becomes this Isolated? Like gothic, hmm. spooky house with fog outside. Okay. Um, and it reminds me of that shot of the exorcist where the, the exorcist yes. shows up and gets out of the taxi cab. Right. So I thought that was something. I was like, "Ooh, now we have some exorcist fog action going oh, on around this house. Love shit's that. going. Shit's getting yeah, bad. Yeah. Um, and again, everyone is hungry, but that's just my thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other thing. So that's one thing. And then this whole. Stay away from the light. Run into the light. This whole, con- again, it's contradiction. It's Yes, it's yes. Conflicting. Yeah, and they're confused too. They're like, well, wait a minute. You told me this one second and now I have to believe this, which is very, very in line with, you know, our idiot president saying weird ass shit one day and then denying it the next and all that. That's how I took that. Wear the mask. Don't wear the mask. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Crazy. Oh. I saw some and meme on Instagram where it was like a cross stitch of uh, the mask and it was quoting Silence of the Lambs. And it said, it puts the masks on its skin or we get COVID again. <laughs> Something oh like that. Oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was like that, again, that contradiction of, of ideas about how to deal with the situation. And, and, and they're like, well, you're telling me one thing and then you're telling me another thing. And, mm-hmm. um, which kind of brings me to the Contradictory idea of, leadership. Yeah. And to the idea of reli- the, the way religion is depicted in this movie was also very strange in this viewing. Hmm. Um, I it was again unclear whether they were agnostic, whether they were religious, spiritual. It was very right. weird. Um, well, I feel like that it goes into the whole capitalism thing. That capitalism can be a religion. I think people pursue that when people. Uh, I think Americans pursue life and liberty and all that crap. I think it really it's just how much money and stuff can I have before I die, and that equates my value. Exactly. And and I think that before in amazing horror movies like The Exorcist or anything Argento, yeah, I think that the stakes are higher of spirituality, knowing oneself. It's very introspective. And this is definitely a political statement. And that goes with my other observation about when the the, um, 
bodies come out of the ground at the end of the movie, they all have their jewelry on, their possessions on. So I want um, to talk about that. Can I talk about that really Yes, quick? yes. So I, I don't care about discussing the actual skeleton pulsing because I think it's been beat to death. Everybody knows about it. I did not notice that skeleton, that close-up of the skeleton wearing those pearls and the mm-hmm. diamonds. And it was, to me... I thought it was very, um, it was pinpointing not just opulent wealth. To me, I thought it was pointing out that this was a woman. And here we are loving Jo Beth. We love her. She's a good mom and a good person. But she was compliant. She went with it. She didn't ruffle any feathers. And it made me think of the hard side of feminism and and those women that vote for Trump. <laughs> so saying that um, I have some, not Republican friends, but Trumpist, well, they used to be friends, but I had like a few people that voted for Trump the first time around. I'm like, what are you doing? And there were some very hard discussions that followed that. But I found that most of my female friends that did vote and then we had this whole fucking thing um they pretty much just voted because their husbands did they went with protocol they i don't know if it was because they didn't want to think for themselves or if they didn't want to ruffle any feathers if they didn't want to do the research on their own i don't know but i felt like it was a very common denominator with myself and a few other friends that have friends that mean well in the south and they were compliant. They went along with this. And I have family members who did the same thing. Exactly. So. And it's like yeah. they're not terrible people, but they did do this thing, and it makes you question. And that, my friend, I love that line that Zelda, the, we haven't even got to Zelda. Oh, my God. The fabulous Zelda Rubenstein, my favorite quote from this, she very calmly tells them, some people get lost going into the light. And that's what I thought for this whole political debacle. Some people think that they're doing the right thing and they're raised with these values and what their parents told them, and they're not. And it's taking a moment of self-reflection and doing that. I also, with this whole kind of Republican um, compliance that I saw in that pool scene, I also thought about the difference between white feminism and black feminism because I'm a hardcore feminist. However, I know... I know that whatever struggle that I have to do, it is never going to be as hard and draining as a woman of color. Like their fight is completely different than a white woman's. And and a lot of white women have thought that they're good allies and there's just more to be done. There's more to be done. And so I felt that that skeleton hit me in so many different ways of like, oh, fuck, I need to do more about this. And why are people so compliant? And yeah, anyways, that's what I got to say about that, that bitch wearing the pearls in the pool. <laughs> and the, the bitch wearing the pearls in the pool also is a, is a call of, for action. Yes. To, to, of like, to you live comfortable, but it's time to fucking say something and use your privilege to, to do some shit. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't want to get ahead, but at the end of the movie, they reject everything. Yes. They reject the suburban life. Yeah, they reject the privilege. They re- yeah. So well, we'll get there. We'll get there. I don't want to get to the to conclusion okay. there yet. All right. Um, so one other thing is, um, let's talk a little bit about um, 
Dr. Latch, Beatrice Strait, and her Let's very famous. Let's talk about them. Yes. The the, the the paranormal doctor, mm-hmm. um, her her whole some some people speech, which is one of the longest scene in the movie, where hmm. she goes some people, and it's I think again hitting at this idea what is what is the religion or the spirituality represented in the movie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she goes she's talking to Robbie, Robbie and Jobeth at night late at night. She's like some people believe this, some yeah. people believe that. And Joe Beth is having a drink and she's chill and they're just having like a woman to woman conversation. This this yeah. struck me as well. And um and I think she kind of explains that not everyone agrees on what in terms of religion and spirituality, what the world is. Mm-hmm. Right? So she's explaining that there's different perspectives and mm-hmm. that they're none of them are right and none of them are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um and I've always thought when I was younger that this was like a really long scene where this old woman is talking for a very long time. And this time I actually <laughs> listened to the speech. <laughs> You're like, wrap it up. <laughs> like, Some people believe. <laughs> and now I realize that it, it's kind of hinting at the, one of the larger themes of the movie that as they're ex- dealing with what's going on in the house and the, the abduction and the choices that they make in dealing with the abduction, it all comes to what you believe in and they not not all the characters in the movie think the same thing Mm -hmm. even though they're supposed to be like this unified family Mm -hmm. and so jobeth and craig and i think this goes to what you were just very much eloquently talking about i don't think so the wife does not agree with the husband the husband does not agree with the wife Mm -hmm. and so which goes to a larger point that in the second act of this movie, Craig T. Nelson completely shuts down as a yeah, character and becomes he's, catatonic. Right. He's catatonic. He's like like a zombie and useless. And then and the women are the ones the that story becomes a story about and, three women. Yeah. And and I I noticed that as well this time around. I in that exact scene that you're speaking of, I'm like, women believe women. They really do. There was a culture, and you know, in some instances where women are still, you know, jealous or trying to undercut each other out of need for survival. But I think as a whole, feminism has grown to, you know, especially thanks to the Me Too movement of women believe women. And hear what you said earlier about Craig T. Nelson being like, no, 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 nobody goes in the kitchen till I figure out what's happening. And then here, Joe Beth is like. I'm frantic. What's going on? Let's have a drink. The psychic and Zelda Rubenstein. They're just like, all right, let's get shit done. Like we're, we're here to solve the problem. Like nobody else is going to help us. Let's stick together and get her done. You know? And I thought that was powerful. Yeah. And I, the other thing is that once Caroline disappears and Craig D goes into, I yeah, he's useless. Stasis. Useless. He's useless. He can't solve this problem. So he was going to say who was going to go in the fucking kitchen and he can't say anything after right. that. And it, so it's up to the women to, to figure out how to solve this. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have this uh, Dr. Letch, Beatrice Strait. She has like her, she's like a, you know, a boss bitch. She yeah. has her team. Careful, <laughs> I wrote that drunkenly <laughs> in my notebook. I have like scribbled boss bitch. <laughs> She is like running the show. And then, so then there's this whole theme about the camera setup that they put in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
how they're always and one of the things I never noticed they're kind of shooting everything like almost like a documentary right so one way of that oh they should remake this movie with the documentary footage that was shot well that's why recording everything I also want to prove to that point we're gonna circle back to Mr. Richard Lawson Beyonce's stepdaddy this is crazy (laughs) the only African-American in the film I gotta say seeing a black man with a camera and his line he says um oh oh, god i'm not going to quote this correctly it's written down somewhere of uh like i got to get this on camera like his urgency like seeing that at the height of black lives matter hit differently it really did and so he is there to document it all and i started to wonder if his casting like what you were pointing out about the pullman being white i'm like was this a a very particular casting of we need an African-American to represent a minority of like, they're shitting all over the Native Americans and we need another minority to be like, yep, this is kind of what happens. And I had to play along with it, but I'm still not treated equally. I mean, I kind of thought that was a subconscious thing. What were you going to say? But I also have something to say about this because she had two people working for her. The right. other guy, the white guy, right, has his whole... He's starving like everyone in the fucking yes. movie. He has to go find the chicken and the steak and then the steak becomes like decomposed and the chicken has maggots coming out of it. And then he like destroys, removes his face. And that's another the- scene that hits people way differently. People are traumatized by that one. I'm like, oh, this looks like 80s effects to me like when I was a kid. But um, seeing it again, I was thinking, what's yeah? What's the point? What 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 was the symbolism of that? Of seeing the maggots and all the meat? I think it's realizing that you are at the end of the day, you're just a corpse waiting to die. Oh, okay. So I think, and then the guy cannot handle dealing with death Mm. or decomposition. It's a decomposition. See, I'm going to decompose into a skeleton. Right. It's it's foreshadowing the end of the movie again, the skeletons coming Mm -hmm. out of the pool and all that. Right. But the part that I thought was interesting is that after that, the guy, remember um, Dr. Lech, Beatrice Strait said, he's not coming back. Mm. But the black guy comes back. Yeah. He's not afraid to deal with the situation. He knows how to navigate. He's like, this is going to be some freaky stuff, but... So again, I equate that character to Craig T, who shuts down, cannot yeah. handle, cannot yeah, handle the forces at bay. Huh. So again, the white straight males in the movie cannot fucking handle anything and shut down. <laughs> the black guy and the Which, women. We love you, straight white men. I, I'm really, I'm a fan, but I'm very much uh yeah, yeah we're not we're not <laughs> criticizing Wait. we're just talking about the stigma of how it's been for a very long time and we're very happy that tides are are turning so <laughs> yes we it's just in this movie that they they're definitely representing this idea like robbie seems great <laughs> the, the people who are supposed to be in in, in control all of a sudden right correct like, with the controls at the beginning yes. are cannot be in control when the crisis hits correct which, hey. Does that remind you of anything? Uh, sadly. <laughs> sadly. Sorry. Yes. So. Yes. So. Um, let's talk about the taxi. <laughs> that fucking. Yes. It annoyed me as a child. It annoyed me seeing it as a teenager. It annoyed me again last night when I saw it. I Tell me your problems with the taxi scene. So. First thing, 
Okay, so they're so concerned about their children, but they can't drive their child to the grandma's house. She can't live that far away. I know. They send him on a taxi, yeah. and then then she, the mom says to uh, Jova says to him, "Call me." <laughs> like, so you're supposed to be freaking out about the fact that your daughter disappeared, and then you send off your other e- equally young child in a taxi cab. With a stranger, you don't even get close to the taxi cab. You're like far away in the house. Like I can't fucking leave the house. <laughs> like get in that taxi cab. They don't even show the taxi cab. Driver. Well, yeah, it's and like, I and I think so that's strange. that's a reflection of of um, latchkey kid culture of just like yeah, they'll be fine. Which you know, there's something to that. Your kids should be tough. They shouldn't be you know coddled as all hell or helicopter parented like we, what we discussed earlier, but. They're almost a little too lax. I mean, there's... <laughs> you have a car. You can drive. One of you can drive. The other one can stay. I mean, hell, I'd be just like, get me out of this haunted, freaky house. Give me something to do. Give me a trip to go on. Yeah, I'll take you to your grandma's house where she live. You know, San Diego? Cool, let's go. I mean... <laughs> it was so strange. I was like, wait a minute. I don't understand. They're setting him up on a taxi. Yeah. Sets I, off their six always bothered me. Taxi. I'm so glad that you felt the same. I'm so <laughs> bothered by that scene. But and they're like, cool. Here's the dog. Take the dog. I was like, what? Uh, it's <laughs> a dumb golden retriever. Oh, before we talk to sell that, I, I don't know. This is a small comment, but okay. they all have the flu and they can't leave the house. <laughs> They're in quarantine, <laughs> of course, I thought of our time. That is accurate. That's accurate. Like, Where anytime somebody have- coughs or sniffles, you're just like, oh, God, they have COVID. Oh, Jesus. It's like, no, you have some allergies. You're fine. Just wear your mask. Stay inside. Okay, I'm getting to the Zelda part. Oh, yeah. So I already said this. Like, oh, they're always recording um, everything. And I was like, oh, it would be really cool to just see the movie from the perspective of the footage they shot. Do like a Blair Witch version. Oh. Yeah, um, I oh, was that, like, could be that should be that should be the remake. What did the black guy shot? And it's like a black man's perspective. I don't know. Oh, I my God, that'd be great. I'm um, into that. And again, the other thing that the whole movie takes place in the house. Mm-hmm. There's only one scene outside of the entire Cuesta Verde complex mm-hmm. and three scenes outside of the house. And I just mm-hmm. thought I never realized that it was so um, self. What's the word? Self-contained. Um, Self-contained. It's mm-hmm. like a one-location movie, pretty right. much. Um, I wrote something here. Oh God, Stephen does not get it. That's Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> I was so pissed off at him for some reason. Our I don't hate know towards <laughs> the Craig T. character. It's like I love he you, Craig T. But man, why? Why were you so useless in this situation? He's so. Oh, so. Um, okay, so let's talk about Zelda. But there was this one part when they show this is probably an Act Three comment, but um, when the ghost that appears in the door, there's a, they use this a lot to promote yes, the movie. Yes, I wanted to ask you the symbolism behind it because I thought it was so hokey, and I'm just like, what does this represent? I have a broad idea, but I want to know your opinion on this. Well, this might share provide some pointers. Okay, the the ghost growls at Joe Beth. Okay. And this is what I noticed. The sound of the ghost is the same exact sound. And I actually went back and looked at it. Okay. That's the MGM <gasps> lion the MGM at the beginning lion. of the movie. Stop it. Yes. He's oh. the same sound effect. So to me, subconsciously, but now consciously, I was like, 
it's like I'm back at the beginning of the movie <gasps> when you first heard the thing. <sighs> and it, I don't know if it's a commentary on the construction of the movie as a product, as a capitalist product, oh, or what is going on. Oh, my God. But it's the MGM lion. The lion, right? It's the lion. On yeah, the it's the lion. So, that okay. is fascinating. I would not have gotten that on my own. And it must have been a choice by the sound designers. I don't know, but it's just very trippy that you have that moment where it kind of brings you back because you heard the sound at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So huh. it, it, it threw me for a loop. I find that fascinating. Literally. I think that is a <laughs> really fascinating observation. Um, but let's talk Zelda. We let's have... go to Zelda! What you got on my girl Zelda? So Zelda, first of all, I never realized that... She showed up so know. late in the movie? Yes, and she I'd, has a very small part. Yeah, but she's so but moving she rules large. it. Oh my god! Yeah. She has a very. It's almost like a. I would not a cameo, but like a. Um, like you pay attention when she comes on screen. When she comes on screen, I think. Um, what's his name? Um, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs only has about ten minutes of screen time, but uh-huh. the movie is him. In Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So, and you don't really know his presence and his performance is so, he won Best Actor for a 10 right. minute performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, who was it? Um, maybe it was, who was the actress who won for the shortest performance? It was like five minutes. Oh, um, I think it was, um, it was Ann Archer. No, 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 nope. It was, it no. Wife. I no, actually it's... think it was. Oh my god, we should have researched. It this. might be. It was it either Wait Judy for it. Dench. Judy Dench. No, and Shakespeare in Love. Because she wait, had like I'm look a line. This up right now, it's it's a '70s movie. Oh, yeah, it was like shortest performance. Like it wasn't even a line; it was a look or something that this woman got it. Oh man, who was it? It wasn't Ann Archer. I no, I oh my god, who was it? Mind blowing. What? It's the it's Beatrice Strait who plays Doctor Lesh. <gasps> what? This is my, I, mind blown. She wow. won for what so movie? The, guys, ladies and gentlemen, the actress who plays the doctor, the paranormal doctor, who we were just talking about, won for the, she has the um, Guinness World Record for winning an Oscar for the shortest ever performance. Five minutes and 40 seconds in network. She was wow. the wife of the guy. And she has that crazy scene. Yes. Oh, um, my God. That's her. Network that's- is so, so goddamn good. Such a good movie. Wow. So, well, you blew my mind so repeatedly. Well, not quite five minutes, but she's well, not in the movie very much. Right. So I was surprised that she showed up so late in the game because I feel like that movie is really all her and it's because Craig T is backing out like a puss and Joe Beth is acting her ass off and nobody cares. And then Zelda comes in and her performance is very um, on the other end of the spectrum. They're both powerhouses, Joe Beth and Zelda. And I actually wrote in my notes that she has that... De Niro, Michael Madsen. I love Michael Madsen. Um, This hushed, tough, 1950s bad guy performance with whispered lines 
that these actors like to emulate. Like they're it's vulnerable, but I'm fucking tough. Like I will get at you. Don't mess with me. And she's so tiny and she talks with a hushed voice, but man, she means business. And I, I thought her performance was otherworld. It was phenomenal. So it's good. like almost hypnotic. Yes. Like when she talks, everyone pays attention. And mm-hmm. the, the, the whole scene is set up. She has, it's like she's the ultimate knowledge in the movie. Right. And I hope that you know that I scribbled on my notes <laughs> and that scene, everybody's kneeling before her and they're all really tiny in front of her. And this little four foot two woman <laughs> is talking and they're just enraptured and looking at her with awe. And in my notes, I have no idea what I meant by this, but I scribbled 1992 Ross Perot. <laughs> <laughs> yes he was he was famously short he was a very tiny munchkin-esque guy that commanded a room (laughs) and i have no idea why my head went there so that commands the room (laughs) commands the room um i also want to say that when she's screaming i don't know if you want to jump to this yet but when she's screaming come into the light and they form a human chain do you have things to say before that scene when they're throwing the balls and doing the whole thing, right? That part. Yeah. And she's just um, like, oh, who punishes the child? She's going to listen to you. And that's when Craig T is like, well, I do. I'm the commander of, you know. Well, I mean, that, for me, that whole sequence started, again, I was in this, like, eating body metaphor <laughs> that the house is a body and it's, right. they're, they're throwing something through the mouth uh-huh. that comes out the other end. Mm. And you know what that means. So when Jobeth goes in and comes out, it's it's again it's like a birth sequence. She's coming out with her daughter with the umbilical cord. Mm -hmm. There's this like body imagery. So the other the other side or the spiritual world is like being inside the human body, and this is backed up by the fact that later on in the movie, when they're when the 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 second attempt at the abduction of the children, right when they the house goes crazy mm-hmm. that they show what's what's pulling everything in in the room and mm-hmm. it looks like your throat with a tongue oh interesting so okay i again i went in this crazy eating disorder everyone's hungry Guillermo, do we need to talk about <laughs> your diet restriction <laughs> do we need to talk I, I, about what's happening in COVID? i know we're working out a lot we're trying not to gain weight we're trying to also listeners Guillermo has lost 40 pounds 40 pounds pounds. and i'm hoping now he's doing it safely because (laughs) you have me worried at this point (laughs) i am maybe that's i'm hungry and then i saw i'm hungry they're they're hungry i'm hungry with them well it's kind of like yeah if you try a new diet or you know we're doing this fasting thing at night every time i look at tv i'm like oh man that looks so good i want it So it was like everyone's hungry, and then this whole movie is about going through the body, right? As if you're food. Yeah. So there was like a lot of body for to for a representation yeah. of spirituality or heaven or the mm-hmm. world of the dead or mm-hmm. the spirits. It was like going inside a a, a body. Yeah. So I thought that was very strange, and it, it compared, kind of connecting that to. Dana and her 
whole thing about eating vegetables in the morning and yeah which i didn't get until this time around i'm like man she's chomping on little vegetables all the time and then the lays and the cheetos product placement yeah i I got that this time around um i mean again my conclusion about that by the end of the movie is that this the theme of the movie was consumption Yes. Which connects to yes. the idea of capitalism and mm-hmm. they have all this stuff in the house and they want to consume so many things. Mm-hmm. So you can connect that to an eating metaphor. Right. So the, the, and then I the, agree. The spirits want to consume the daughter. Yeah. Um, and again, like you said, they're confused about what the light actually is right. and stuff and so forth. And so this is whenever Zelda... Um, she's screaming, come into the light and all that, which, oh, by the way, another Zelda quote that I love, her entrance, she's like, back away, you're jamming up my frequencies. Like, she's just (laughs) a boss. (laughs) I love her. So um, when she's screaming with such conviction, you know, to come into the light, I realized, and I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, this is why you love Kim Wilde so much. (laughs) (gasps) <gasps> yes, this is a Kim Wilde scene. Oh, my God. So everybody, Guillermo has oh this God. mad love for Kim Wilde, who uh, she wrote, or I mean, she did the remake of You Keep Me Hanging Hang On. Like super 80s, but she's Which in no there. Which remembers you. I know. And it'll come on like a revolver on the on the screen and we'll lose our minds and try to dance in front of the fan and try to have a Beyonce hair fan moment. But um it, I was just like, oh, this movie impacted Guillermo to the point that <laughs> you were obsessed with Kim Wilde for the longest time. And it's all because of the silhouettes and the lighting and the wind. Like, that is the shot. It is the music video for Keep Me Hanging On. So yes. I yes. I felt like I learned a little bit more about you. <laughs> and all movie. these things were happening, I don't know, at the same time. Because yeah. I, around that age when I saw the movie was when the video, and I remember watching the video at a Pizza Hut for the first time. <laughs> Pizza Hut and used I, to be the jam. It was like MTV was playing. Yeah. And there's Kim Wilde fighting the shadows. And in fact, my movie, The Shadows, oh. has a lot of imagery from this whole thing that we're talking about. Wow. The I think Kim we just Wilde opened a Pandora's box here. The, the strobe light yeah. effect and f- fan. And oh, my God. You're, <laughs> up, you're you've just connected everything in my life. Right now. <gasps> but did I'm you realize that? Because it was glaringly no, obvious to me no, now. No, no, I didn't. Now I'm like we've seen this together. This. I don't know before, what to do with myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I mean, I want to talk more about the fake-out ending and oh, Nightmare yes. on Elm Street comparisons. So they get Carol Ann. Of course, Joanne goes in there and she saves her daughter. I mean... It's a heroin movie. It's awesome. Um, whenever they come with the moving truck and right before the skeletons in the pool, I honestly thought, I was like, oh, this movie's over. It's done. But it was the fake out ending. I totally forgot. I was just like, oh, we're wrapping this up. Totally forgot about that. Oh, the vertigo hallway. The vertigo effect on the hallway. Oh, so this is well, yes. So, yes. Yes. This goes into my nightmare, uh, my nightmare on Elm Street theory, too. So let's talk about it. The vertigo hallway. So this vertigo hallway... Again, this idea that the house that they are living in, that we spend the whole movie in, that it's supposed to represent their wealth and the effects of everything. They, I think Joe Williams even said, we work so hard when they're trying to move away at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. We work so hard for this. 
um, the that expansion of the hallway where it becomes this with the I thought that was a new element that was introduced into the movie that we hadn't seen before. Yes, we know that there's another world that you can go in through the closet, but now the house itself can move. Right. And that's actually a very unique thing mm -hmm. in the house. And mm -hmm. I think there's this novel called House of Leaves oh. in the year 2000. It's a very famous horror novel, and it's uh -huh. about a house that the horror of the novel comes about because the house... When they measure it inside, there's a part of the house that is a quarter of an inch bigger than the out than the, what it should be, and oh, that begins a house that is bigger on the inside than it should be on the outside. They also reference that theory in that um, kind of that pseudo okay horror movie with Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. What is it? The you should have left. Like the the locals say, oh, architecturally it changes all the time, and if you measure it. It that's it, always an inch off, or the outside is going to be bigger than the inside. Like it's all freaky, and I did that's not know. Referencing that novel, yeah, hundred percent referencing that, and I did not know that. I did not read that. You are the professor. So, <laughs> and the the novel is very much a, a this is a this is a very dense novel, by the way, right? It's it's yes, hundreds it's of pages, seven hundred pages, seven hundred pages. Read it. And it's a it's a it's a it's a very meta novel. Like it's a novel leaves. about this guy in LA. It's a very LA novel who finds this guy, his neighbor in his apartment building dies, and he finds a manuscript where this guy was wrote this manuscript that was about a movie that never existed, but the guy was blind, and so then this movie is about the house. It's kind oh of like the God. recording thing wow. oh it's crazy book. but didn't but you say is... at one point um, you and i talked about this at one point and wasn't it kind of a rough basis for haunting of hill house or the, the so Netflix they wanted show they, what is it um uh, the new version the new yeah. haunting of hill house which so, yeah. is not at all an adaptation of the novel haunting of hill house. Yeah, right yeah um so it has some elements of that okay but not based again, on just like some borrowed no, 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 some pastiche well, it's when Haunting of Hill House came out, the author of House of Leaves started writing screenplays to create a series based on the novel. But mm -hmm. part of the problem is that the novel is impossible to adapt into mm -hmm. any medium because it's such a play on literary reading and writing. And oh. Even though it's about a film. Uh -huh. So he had this idea of making the same idea, but using audiovisual formats. Mm. Um, so, but he's published all of these scripts online, and you can find them. Oh, interesting! So I don't know if they'll actually ever try to make this series. I think they should. I think it would be an interesting. It would be something that Wes Craven would do so well. Oh. It would be very Wes Craven's new nightmare. Well, Wes Craven, let's talk about. Let's, okay, tell me about your Nightmare on Elm Street connection. So. If anybody, I mean, once again, Shudder is getting us through COVID. <laughs> I love Shudder so much. And they had this amazing documentary called Scream Queen and all about how Nightmare on Elm Street 2 or 3, 2, was two, 2, right? Two. Yeah, it was the gayest horror film ever created. And it's amazing. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, I felt Nightmare on Elm Street borrowed heavily from this sequence, what you're saying with the nod to Hitchcock. So, yeah, that's kind of a the pastiche. It's like the borrowing from two different directors kind of deal going on. But from Joe Beth gets the gray streak in her hair. 
Heather Luggenkamp, <gasps> and right? Yes. She, and at okay. first, I, I had to go to IMDb to go, wait, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, it was something in production longer than the other, you know, and one re- was released first, you know? It's two years. So two, it's, it's very uh, close together. Nightmare uh, Street is 84. Yes. Yeah. And so we have the gray hair stress streak that she has. Um, we also have, in that sequence... Um, she takes a bath. The red lighting is happening. You're like, oh, and it's that that phenomenal, sh- like reminiscent of that fun- that shot where Heather Leggenkamp is in the bathtub and Freddie's hand goes up because <gasps> she's just like relaxed and there. And the the camera point of view is exactly that. And then also referencing the Johnny Depp bed blood scene where he's just like convulsing on the bed and climbing up the walls and pretty much like that. And I've never... And they and in fact, in fact, you're more right than you think oh. because the the way they shoot that scene where Jobeth goes into the wall and mm-hmm. the ceiling mm-hmm. is by making a set that rotates. And that's exactly oh. what they use <gasps> to shoot actually not the... Not necessarily... Not the... Well, yes, they used it twice in Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh-huh. The Johnny Depp scene, but also the 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 first murder, the friend, yeah, um, Amanda Wiss, right, Tina, right. When Tina dies and she goes all through, it's totally poltergeist. So she goes up the walls and Johnny Depp sits on the bed, right? On the bed. But the thing is, what happened is in the Tina death, she it's very similar to what happens to Jobeth Williams, where Uh she's going through the walls Uh and Freddie's trying to kill her. Yeah, but it's the same effect. It's just basically they build the room and they rotate it. So yeah, the actor can go. Oh, I didn't rolling. know it was shot that way. That's yeah, pretty cool. So that oh. shot and and it was first done in Poltergeist. They built that room and then they just rotate and Joe Beth kind of rolls down as uh-huh. the thing is rotating. They did. Wes Craven stole, not stole it, but like took that concept. <laughs> you know, did a homage <laughs> to. <laughs> and did it twice in the movie. Once was the scene for Tina, and then the, but. Interesting enough, what happened with the Johnny Depp one, it was that scene was actually a mistake. It was hmm. supposed to be similar to the Tina scene. Mm-hmm. The, the thing broke. And so if you watch the scene again, the blood is going sideways. Oh, um, huh. Because the, everything went to hell and the, they were almost, everyone, the crew almost all got electrocuted because oh, the gosh. water went Jesus. wrong. And it was supposed to do something else. He was supposed to come out of the, the um, Johnny that was supposed to come out of the hole again. Yeah. But then once that happened and it was a hazard, they were like, nope, that's all we got. And like, then we when got they looked it. at the shot, there you it go. looked really cool. Yeah. And then they had that blood spewing out thing, but it was an accident. Huh. I had well, something else. Hey, that's what happens in filmmaking happy accidents. And then happy they become... accidents. And now it's an iconic exactly. moment. Exactly. Um, do you want to talk about the house imploding upon itself and the boss watching it, crying into his hands? What do you want to talk about before we get to that final shot? Because I have things to say about that shot. So <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the climactic third act where the house goes crazy mm-hmm. and we get the, all the bodies coming out, again, Craig T. Nelson is not there. He's off talking to his boss. Yeah. Um, and I find it interesting that they've rejected the 
like in this life, they, there's this very right before, right? They're like, no, this is what we worked for, but we're we're running, we're leaving this dream, which I think we're going to talk about with the last scene, right? But but then he goes to talk to the boss to basically, supposedly he goes to tell him that they're leaving and they're mm-hmm. done, that he's mm-hmm. quitting his job, that mm-hmm. he's done with his bullshit. Mm-hmm. But then when they come back, I don't think that's what he did. I think. Again, I think Craig T. Nelson is like a little late in realizing. Well, yeah, and and I thought that was a weird storytelling technique that the boss spells out of, oh, hey, we'll give you more money. Like what we did, you know, all this is on a burial ground. And then Craig T.'s like, oh, no, what do you say? Oh, no, I wouldn't have signed off on that. But there is that subconscious of, yeah, you're doing something kind of shitty and wrong to make all this money and to get away with this. He had a subconscious feeling because he's chasing the American dream. So I thought that was an interesting plot point where the boss just makes it blatant of you did this and I'm going to give you more money to do it some more. And then he has exactly. that, he has that moral judgment that, that call of going, mm, okay. But on- honestly, if he wasn't haunted in the house, he would have kept developing that neighborhood and making shitty small houses <laughs> where the children have to share their bedrooms. <laughs> so, so it was just like a very blatant storytelling device that I thought was, I don't know. It was a little weird. But anyway. It's very strange. Yeah. And so then when at the end when he comes back with with the with the boss and he's like, you moved the headstones, but you left the bodies. Yes. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was an excellent reenactment, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then the guy like, you know, sees the horror of what he's created. Right. Right. And in my head, I'm hoping this is corporations realizing, you know, like, oh, Facebook realizing, oh, what we're doing is we're running hate ads. Why? But no, that's never going to be. That's a fairy tale in it's, itself. It's the corporate corporate CEO realizing the effects of, of what he's done, right? Mm-hmm. Only when they're called out on it. Only when they see it with their own eyes and are being judged for it. Well, they'd be like, oh, well, we need a PR no, only person. Only when the fucking house is falling apart yeah. and disappearing all of his hard work he looks at it and he's crying because it's a cost you know that's how i took it <laughs> it's like oh shit i'm gonna lose everything so there's that you know that kind of capitalist commentary with development and so forth mm-hmm. going on there mm-hmm. but there's also this idea that, that again the steven aka quick nelson is useless when the when the jobeth comes to the door and they they can't get out because a tomb comes out. And he's like, she says, Stephen, help us. He can never help them. No. He never helped. He did no. fucking nothing the entire movie. He's been a hindrance. <laughs> he's the reason they're suffering. Exactly. It was like, I is so Man, we weird. are hating on the Craig T. Nelson character so we love hard. You, Craig T., I love but the you. Character. <laughs> but maybe this was the commentary, the whole yeah. that's being made. There's a commentary on the stereotype of the typical nuclear American family, the 1950s right. And just because somebody is likable and affable, I mean, if you're complacent, you're part of the problem, honestly. So, again, Jobeth has to figure out a way to get the, out of the fucking I know, she burning her down kids, house. She's smoking weed. She has her hot pants on. Like, Jobeth is baller in this. I love she's, her. She has to do it all herself. She's making friends with Zelda and the psych. Like, I mean, she's great. I love this character. Um, it's a good and character. I guess the other part to talk about in that scene is when they're leaving at the end. 
and the daughter comes back from the with the transam. And again, I mentioned this earlier where it always bothered me that they don't even show her getting into the car. Right. Where I completely think for like five seconds that she's been left behind. Yeah. Also, who are the people in her transam? I know. Who are these people? I mean, it's just isolated to a family unit. They don't explore friends. So And then Another interesting fact, which I'm, which is was oh, you're pouring earlier. more wine. I'm sorry. I'm gonna start uh, into. My I just realized. Fall. I thought I was almost out, but then I realized I have a lot left, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> um, well, oh. I, I'm excited to jump into my. Um, oh, and it's early. I thought it was much later. This is great. Okay, um, so um, Dana says. Oh, you're letting the sky fall. Let it crumble. Very excited. Oh. I love that we sing to our alcohol. Um, so, so damn transaction. Thing. Oh, I like she references when they're moving earlier before the craziness happens mm-hmm. that she's been at the motel, mm-hmm. and the mom was like, "What?" <laughs> so I get, who are you? So Dana has a whole movie that we, I want the Dana movie where she's having problems. The Richard Lawson perspective and the Dana perspective. The Dana perspective. And she's, and they were like, okay, so when the transam, if you pause, there's like three guys in that transam. So she's supposedly out with. Dana was getting it. Was it the pool guys? (laughs) Maybe she went out with the pool guys. I don't know. Maybe that was foreshadowing. She has some sort of life. Outside of the family, the family yeah, is she's completely not unaware of what she's going through. So, and you know what that made me think? And before we get to the ending, yes, is that the parents are only concerned with the younger kids. Mm-hmm. But she, I think she's sixteen, and this is a very American thing. Maybe the movie's criticizing this. The moment you, the kids grow up, you don't. They don't matter. You know, this whole idea that 18, you're kicked out of the house. Yeah, that you're in a fully-fledged adult um, and don't bother us until you can take care of us and we don't want to go into a home. So visit. <laughs> yeah, the, the fact that the kids are neglected or not like neglected or just disconnected well, from you. Okay, the, so older. This so is I a, thought that was weird because I'm Hispanic and the families never go away. You I know, know yeah, and, and from my perspective, like I know so many people that have adoring, loving families and you know, like my boyfriend has the best mom in the world and I, I see healthy families. For me, I was an only child and I was neglected. So I'm just like, what? I, I'm all you got. <laughs> you know, really? Okay, shit. I mean, guys really must not be interested. But... Like for you, you are the youngest, correct? No, I'm the the. You're the middle. The middle. Oh, that's right. Your brother is. Oh my God, Jesus! I. <laughs> my brother's the. In youngest. my head, you're yeah. So he's the youngest. By how many years? Seven. I know he was really? an accident. My brother is an accident. We can say. And you remind him that every day. He, um, no, I, there's this whole myth to birth order and how your parents raise you. And honestly, I just chalk it up to, you know, your first anything is not easy and you learn trial and error, you know, and people always have the stigma that the youngest child is always spoiled. And I'm like, well, no, I think that people have their shit figured out a little bit more by the time the youngest comes around. Like they, they don't think that you're going to break if 
you know, they drop you or and you can have some hand-me-downs. I don't know. There's a different stigma. Once again, I'm an only child. I'm just making observations about this. Um, but I felt like Dana was so thrown away and she was the oldest child. She seemed so disconnected, so not interested. She seemed like she was doing her thing. They were doing their thing. And once again, it goes to Joe Beth being her hippie-like person being, you know, hey, I want my space, you do your thing, whatevs. They don't have that closeness that she and the youngest child have. So So is it but it's again, is there a hypocrisy mm-hmm. in the fact and I think again, this is me reading the movie that's this very Republican thing. Mm. We're so concerned with the babies and the abortion and Right. But yet they don't give a shit when their children are 15. Right. And they don't care about human life later. It's just strange to me. Like mm. this, this whole idea that the same people who have a huge problem with a woman's right to choose mm-hmm. are okay with the death penalty. Right. Yeah. Once it's again, like, the come into the light, don't come into the light. A hundred percent. The contradictory. The nature. contradictory. And the, the way human life is viewed in this capitalist American society. Right. And so I th- see here the parents focusing on the the youngest kid, right? Because like she's pure. Kid. She has the blonde hair and the blue eyes. She has the and... blonde hair, which looks she looks nothing like them, by the way. I know. Great. I know. So the, the the Aryan child, let's go I Nazi actually, Germany. I thought about that for a second. I'm just like, oh my God, why is she a Hitler oh youth? What's happening? Oh, she's asking uh, about death. Please teach her the right way of history. <laughs> so they have the Aryan child. And then even the second child is like sent off in a taxi. <laughs> so already he's like, you know, he's done. Yeah. Right. And he's like, what? Like seven? Yeah. Nine? I don't know. He's on his own. (laughs) So. I I mean, neglect. The themes of neglect. Yeah. Or fending for your own. They start growing and then you don't give a shit. And so there's a lot of, for a movie about a, again, we started this, this is supposed to be a family movie about families coming together. It's all about families not being together and not giving a shit about each other. And you can be tied up (laughs) in the same house. It ain't gonna make you closer. It's not like they had this wonderful bonding moment when it was all done. They were all freaked the hell out. And I almost expected the the Dana character to just be like, oh, dad, you did that. Like, I mean, to throw it in his face that he's responsible for this terror that happened to them and that the mom went along with it. I mean, it's just interesting that they just witnessed this terror. They were not closer as a result. They just went through it together. And going to what you're saying about the Trans Am and the taxi and and why we both felt that these scenes were problematic. We're like, why does this not fit? Why is this just so strange? Um, this goes to whenever they get the hell out of Dodge after the house has imploded upon itself or while it's, while it's happening and the tornado's going and they got to go to the Holiday Inn. Craig T. Nelson is digging for the keys in his pocket, doing his Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, the keys, the keys, like just getting it. And there's this really odd close-up shot of his ass as he's doing it. <laughs> and his high-waisted oh, denim. <laughs> I'm like, what is the point of the shot? I had no idea. So and every- yet, yet they didn't have a shot to show the daughter getting into exactly. the goddamn car. Like, wow. What is going on I, here? The ass of Craig T. Nelson is more important than the bulimic uh, daughter who cannot get her shit together <laughs> i think that we've analyzed so many things in this episode but 
the car shots will remain a mystery unless somebody can enlighten us. If you're listening, if you have a theory, let us know because I, I feel like we've we've unveiled many many deep themes that could be or you know that could be right or could be complete bullshit. But this is how it struck us. I just can't wrap my head around those three car shots. They're just so yes. out of place. They're so weird. So moving on to the final scene. The motel. Let's talk about it. Get your drink. Drink your drink. This is family after the close-up of Craig T's ass. They go to the Holiday Inn. They are exhausted. They're up there, crawl to the room. They all go in. Craig looks around the city and then goes in. The door shuts. We get two seconds. He throws the TV on wheels onto the balcony. Door slam. Comedic, poignant, five-second shot, you know, for that TV coming out. As a kid, tell me what you thought that meant. And I asked Jack this, um, how he interpreted it as well, because, you know, rewatching it with... I think that he hasn't seen it or maybe he saw it as a kid and just really didn't retain it. So tell me how you felt as a kid, how you felt the multiple times that we've seen it. And then with 2020 eyes. So as a kid, of course, your, your first feeling, but I remember very clearly because this is a very impactful final scene, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's a strange final it's scene. It's a great but it's a final scene. One. It's a great final scene. Um, it's, as a kid, I always thought, okay, so, you know, the simple answer, they don't want more abductions coming from the TV mm-hmm. to take away their little girl, right? Exactly so the what I thought. come through TV. Yeah, I thought it was very surface. Like the, the simple answer is like, okay, we're done with this. But then as I was growing up into the movie, I was like, no, this is a rejection of the intrusion of media in their lives. That is exactly what I thought, too. Okay. Um, Same page so, so far. And again, if you link this back to all the scenes we saw all the cameras when the paranormal people came in the, that whole setup that looked like a newscast when they were recording the ghosts coming down from the stairs mm-hmm, it's almost mm-hmm. like it's a news it looks like the you know the control room of a news station or a live show mm-hmm. um, there is a lot in this movie about mediation mm-hmm. both in terms of mediums Zelda Rubinstein, who mm-hmm. are summoning and trying to communicate with the with the ghost, but also just technology and media. So it's the rejection of media of them. And so I thought one of the themes of the movie is the manipulation of media in the movie. So Yeah, that's what I got with this rewatching. I so the here's, exact mm-hmm. So here's my perspective, twenty twenty, adding mm-hmm. to all of that. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that we have all these um, media, telephones, computers, things coming at us. We're constantly um, Zoom, FaceTime, Facebook, TikTok, whatever you want to call it. And it's completely always um, presenting the illusion of communication, which is what happens to the girl. And but she's communicating with the other side. And then... Mm-hmm goes to the other side but that that's an illusion that takes you away from actual human communication so i feel like in that ending the whole movie kind of feels like the story of a bunch of disconnected people wow 
so if we have discussed all throughout, mm-hmm. these people are not really paying attention to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. The parents don't know that the daughter has an eating disorder, that she's mm-hmm. sleeping around in motels and maybe having a gangbang with people in a trans am <laughs> who knows they're like what and they're supposed to be so conservative or whatever um they're very not aware of and then that their daughter is starving they ignore yeah completely that the daughter is starving so there's a lot of lack of connection and there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and, uh, but there's not a lot of actual listening except that one scene with about the some people with right. the doctor. With the doctor and Jimmy. Where they're like, I'm listening to you. And then the other one is, okay, Zelda setting every, sitting everyone down for her mm-hmm. storytelling hour. Um, but is the idea that media is an illusion that it, it's a rejection of this. And I think in our contemporary world, we're constantly grappling with everyone's always on their phones. We all know this. We all do it, but we are all, we all get mad when someone else does it. When someone else ignores you and goes in the middle of your conversation to check a text or post or something. So there's this problem where media is constantly trying to pull us away from... From being present. Being present. mm -hmm. So again, it's pulling us to the other side. (laughs) So at the end, they reject that and they go into this dark room so it's a statement against the idea that media manipulates our sense of who we are and our sense of spirituality. Mm-hmm. We think we're getting something otherworldly through the devices, but it's just an illusion. Ooh. It's a perfect illusion, <laughs> Lady Gaga would say. <laughs> I love that. So that's what that's what I see in the ending. I now. I agree, and I I'm with you every step of the way. I totally thought that um, I thought it was superficial of just like well get this TV and white noise shit out of here like I don't want to go through this anymore and then as I got older I thought the Spielberg theory of um, of kind of whenever you and I talked at Musso and Frank's that one day I don't know if, of course you don't remember this because that those fucking martinis <laughs> <laughs> I remember the word. Yes. And, and we were talking about, you know, what Spielberg and Toby were trying to say with this movie at the time. And at the time, I thought it was that you're supposed to um, reject the ideals that the previous generation has passed on to you to actually instead of just defiantly like to actually question it, not just to be like, okay, mom and dad said this and this is how I grew up. And so I should take this too. It's, you know, the, the whole, you should have independent thought theory. And I also thought it went to, um, you know, because Spielberg is affiliated. I thought it had strong themes of Holocaust denial too. Cause I mean, there are still some weird ass people that deny that happened. And it's just like, there's so much documentation and all this horrible stuff that happened. And people are like, no, no, the media made it up. And then we go to fake news, which is what I interpreted that everything that you just said, I, when I saw the TV being thrown out this time around, it's still wearing COVID. Now I have mandated a policy. I, I cannot check the news every day. I am mm-hmm. on a every other day news cycle because I will wake up in constant anxiety if I wake up and look at my news sources and just say like, what the fuck is this headline or what is this? And then I also want to say that throwing the TV out is a statement of check your motherfucking news sources. Don't just read one article, read one article and be like, oh, okay, is that fear mongering? Is that clickbait? Let me research 
three other sites or mm-hmm. things that I trust. And let me actually have a discussion with people and get their opinion on it, rather just reading what you filtered into your brain to be like, well, this is this makes sense to me, and you know, I've always trusted this site, and blah. and then you you just live in this very um, very sheltered world with tunnel vision. So, so I think you just nailed it. What the movie is really about. I, have to say, I just had a moment. <gasps> Tell me you your moment. Saying. Tell me. The complexity of dealing with media in our lives today. Mm. Because it's very hard to figure out what's, re- what's the truth. What's trying to do something to you. Mm-hmm. What's, you know, what you should do about it. And I think this goes back. You're, you're shutting the TV out. goes back to the complexity of like, well, now you should go into the light. Now you should not go into the light. The light is good. The light is bad. The light is lying to you. The light mm-hmm. is... So the movie never explains the whole light thing very clearly. Mm-hmm. But it explains that it is a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. And and I've in my mind, and this is actually the most interesting point about the revision, mm-hmm. when I was young, I, I've always was confused about this whole light issue maybe i thought oh it's related to religion how people deal yeah. with religion right yeah. mm-hmm. so but what and then later on i was like no the light and i i don't know if you gave your i gave myself this explanation was like okay so the light is basically where you completely die so if you cross through the light you are dead but these people, in order for Caroline to get rid of them, she needs to take them to the light, but not go through the light herself. Hmm. Right? And so hmm. that I, this is my explanation to myself as I was watching. Okay, so the, the, Dr. Lash and Zelda are trying to tell, okay, they, she needs to sometimes run to the light so she can get rid of the people who are following her. But then not actually cross into the light herself, because then she would be dead, but she would be done, she mm-hmm. would be disappeared or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then this time when I was watching, I was like, I don't that explanation that I gave to myself doesn't quite hmm. explain what they're actually saying. It's very difficult to understand. Huh. But I think when you put the media manipulation lens over it and you yeah. think of the light as sources of information. Mm-hmm. You understand that depending on what's going on, the light is helping or the light is not helping or the light is manipulating you or the light is giving you illumination, right? As the light should. And I think th- that's really what the light means in this movie. It's the, fa- it's the sort of information is good to know, but it's also a way to manipulate you into to lying. It's a lie. The light is a lie and the lie is truth. The light is a lie and the light is truth. Damn, I think... Alternatively. (laughs) I feel like that was a mic drop moment. (laughs) Damn, I I agree. I think that was beautifully said. Well, on that note, I want to thank everybody for listening to us for part one and part two of Poltergeist. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to say that this episode is clean. Yes. (laughs) You like that. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.